peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Fireplace, a large ebony cross above her bed, and racks of candles. She is said to have read extensively from Rosicrucian manuscripts and from the writings of Aleister Crowley to have possessed a complete collection of the work of Helena Blavatsky and to have been a gifted tarot card reader. What is known for sure is that on the day after Thanksgiving 1979, Judy Sill, the last surviving member of her family, was found dead in a North Hollywood apartment. The cause of death was listed as acute cocaine and codeine intoxication. It was claimed that a suicide note was found but friends insisted that the supposed note was either a portion of a diary entry or an unfinished song. One of her friends would later note that at some point in her life, Judy began to realize that there was a part of her that wasn't under her conscious control. I'm guessing that the guy up for review next could relate to that. Phil Oakes, a folk singer, songwriter, and political activist, was found hanged in his sister's home in Far Rockaway, New York, on April 9, 1976. Throughout his life, Oakes was one of the most overtly political of the 1960s rock and folk music stars. A regular attendee at anti-war, civil rights, and labor rallies, Oakes appeared to be, at all times, an unwavering political leftist. He named his first band The Singing Socialists, that all changed, however, and rather dramatically in the months before his death. Born in El Paso, Texas on December 19, 1940, Phil and his family moved frequently during the first few years of his life. His father, Dr. Jacob Oakes, had been drafted by the U.S. Army and assigned to various military hospitals in New York, New Mexico, and Texas. In 1943, Dr. Oakes was shipped overseas, returning two years later with a medical discharge. Upon his return, he was immediately institutionalized and didn't return to his family for another two years. During that time, he was subjected to every psychiatric treatment imaginable, including electroshock therapy. When he finally returned to his family in 1947, he was but a shell of his former self, described by Phil's sister as almost like a phantom. Beginning in the fall of 1956, Phil Oakes began attending Staunton Military Academy, the very same institution that future serial killer, cult leader Gary Heidnick would attend just one year after Oakes graduated. 
During Phil's two years there, a friend and fellow band member was found swinging from the end of a rope. I probably don't need to add here that the death was ruled a suicide. Following graduation, Phil enrolled at Ohio State University, but not before, oddly enough, having a little plastic surgery done to alter his appearance. Doing such things, needless to say, was rather uncommon in 1958. In early 1962, just months before his scheduled graduation, Oakes dropped out of college to pursue a career in music. By 1966, he had released three albums. In 1967, under the management of his brother, Michael Oakes, Phil moved out to Los Angeles. Michael had begun working the previous year as an assistant to Billy James, who maintained a party house at 8504 Rid Path in, you guessed it, Laurel Canyon. As the 1970s rolled around, and with his career beginning to fade, Phil Oakes began to travel internationally, usually accompanied by vast quantities of booze and pills. Those travels included a visit to Chile not long before the U.S.-sponsored coup that toppled Salvador Allende. In the summer of 1975, Phil Oakes' public persona abruptly changed. Adopting the name John Butler Train, Oakes proclaimed himself a CIA operative and presented himself as a belligerent right-wing thug. He told an interviewer that on the first day of summer 1975, Phil Oakes was murdered in the Chelsea Hotel by John Train. For the good of societies, public and secret, he needed to be gotten rid of. That symbolic assassination on the summer solstice took place at the same hotel that Devin Wilson had flown out of a few years earlier. One of Oakes' biographers would later write that Phil John actually believed he was a member of the CIA. Also in those final months of his life, Oakes began compiling curious lists with entries that apparently referenced U.S. biological warfare research. Shellfish toxin, Fort Detrick, Cobra venom, Chantilly racetrack, hollow silver dollars, New York Cornell Hospital. Many years before Oakes' metamorphosis, in an interesting bit of foreshadowing, Psychological warfare operative George Estabrooks explained in his book, Hypnotism, how U.S. intelligence agencies had been working to create the perfect spy. We start with an excellent subject. We need a man or woman who is highly intelligent and physically tough. Then we start to develop a case of multiple personality through hypnotism. In his normal waking state, which we will call personality A or PA, this individual will become a rabid communist. He will join the party, follow the party line, and make himself as objectionable as possible to the authorities. Note that he will be acting in good faith. He is a communist, or rather his PA is a communist, and will behave as such. Then we develop personality B, PB, the secondary personality, the unconscious personality, if you wish although this is somewhat of a contradiction in terms. This personality is rabidly American and anti-communist. It has all the information possessed by PA, the normal personality, 
whereas PA does not have this advantage. My super spy plays his role as a communist in his waking state, aggressively, consistently, fearlessly. But his PB is a loyal American, and PB has all the memories of PA. As a loyal American, he will not hesitate to divulge those memories. Estabrooks never explained what would happen if the programming were to go haywire and personality B were to emerge and become the conscious personality. But my guess is that such a person would be considered a severe liability and would be treated accordingly. They might even find themselves swinging from the end of a rope. Phil Oakes was 35 at the time of his death. Stacy Sutherland, the lead guitarist and a founding member of the 13th Floor Elevators, was shot to death on August 24, 1978. Despite considerable critical acclaim, the elevators had only lasted a few years, from late 1965 through early 1968. Sutherland was imprisoned in 1969 on drug charges and reportedly drank heavily after that. He was just 32 when he was shot and killed by his wife, Bunny, during a domestic dispute. The shooting, curiously enough, was determined to be accidental, which I suppose means that Bunny accidentally picked up the gun, accidentally disengaged the safety, accidentally pointed it at her husband, accidentally put her finger on the trigger, and then accidentally pulled that trigger. Even more interesting is the story of the band's frontman. During the group's brief period of existence, Sutherland was overshadowed by the enigmatic Rocky Erickson, born Roger Kinnard Erickson. On July 15, 1947, Rocky was a musical prodigy who took up the piano at age 5 and the guitar at age 10. He was also, according to the 2005 documentary feature, You're Gonna Miss Me, a severely abused child. There are strong indications, according to the filmmakers, that architect father Roger, who rarely spoke to the family, sexually abused Rocky and his four younger brothers. Though all but forgotten now, Erickson was a hugely influential figure in the mid to late 1960s. Before there was a San Francisco scene, Texan Rocky had coined the term psychedelic rock and was the first to use feedback and distortion. His distinctive vocals were a major influence on fellow Texan Janis Joplin, who considered joining the elevators before being shuffled off to San Francisco and superstardom. Erickson was also considered to be very good-looking and was an immensely charismatic figure who was well-liked by all who met him, men and women alike. Rocky began his music career at a young age after making the curious decision to drop out of high school just a few weeks shy of graduating. By December 1965, he had formed the elevators with Sutherland and a psychology student by the name of Tommy Hall, who was not a musician, but who appears to have nevertheless been the driving force behind the concept of creating a psychedelic band. Hall was a very outspoken, leery-esque advocate of hallucinogenic drugs like LSD and magic mushrooms. 
He later became a devout follower of Scientology. The band's first album, The Psychedelic Sounds of the 13th Floor Elevators, was released in November 1966, when singer-songwriter Rocky was just 19. The band's sophomore effort, Easter Everywhere, was released the following November. Just months later, though, the group's run would effectively end, though two more albums were subsequently released by the band's label. The Elevator's final performance was at a World's Fair in San Antonio, Texas on, of all days, April 20, 1968. It was there, it is said, that Rocky suffered a complete breakdown and began speaking gibberish. He was still just 20 years old. Erickson was diagnosed as being a paranoid schizophrenic and was forced to endure involuntary electroconvulsive therapy. While hospitalized, he began hearing voices telling him horrible things. A doctor treating him at the time claimed that Rocky would not recover and would be a vegetable for the rest of his life. After reportedly escaping with the help of a friend, Erickson headed to San Francisco, where he started doing heroin and other hard drugs and soon developed hepatitis. Returning to Austin, Rocky was busted with a single marijuana joint. An attorney convinced him to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, a ridiculous defense given the charge, and Erickson was quickly hustled off to Austin State Hospital. He was still just 20 years old at the time of his arrest. Supposedly due to escape attempts, Rocky was transferred to Rusk State Hospital, a stark, barren, maximum security facility for the criminally insane. While there, Erickson was subjected to more forced ECT treatments and the forced administration of Thorazine for three and a half years. Also while confined there, he put together a prison band known as the Missing Links. One member of the band had killed two kids and raped and stabbed his own mother. Another had been involved in the rape and murder of a young boy in Houston. A third had killed his own parents and a sibling. And then there was Rocky, who had been in possession of an insignificant amount of marijuana. As 1972 came to a close, it was determined that Rocky's sanity had been restored, and he was released soon after. He was, however, just a shell of his former self. In the mid-70s, Erickson formed a new band, Rocky Erickson and the Aliens, whose albums, I Think of Demons, 1980, and The Evil One, 1981, revealed the frontman's then-current obsessions. At about that same time, he told an interviewer that, the devil, you see, he's my friend. He also told an interviewer that an alien had taken possession of his body, a belief that he still claimed to hold as recently as 2005. During the 1980s, Erickson withdrew from public view and continued his descent into madness. It is said that he developed a bizarre obsession with the U.S. mail, particularly junk mail solicitations, and that he indulged that obsession for years, poring for hours over his and other people's mail. That chapter of his life reached a peak when he was arrested on mail theft charges after it was discovered that he had taken mail from neighbors and had it displayed in his home. He was, alas, once again institutionalized. 
Throughout the 1990s, Rocky appears to have continued to live a bizarre and troubled life. A reporter for Rolling Stone, who attempted to interview him in 1995, described a heartbreaking scene. The formerly charismatic singer looked nothing like his younger self, with his teeth reduced to rotting stumps and his hair wild and matted. Multiple televisions, stereos, and police scanners blared at maximum volume throughout his home, creating a cacophony of noise apparently intended to drown out the ever-present voices in his head. Rocky's fortunes began to change in the following decade after his younger brother, Sumner, was awarded legal custody of the troubled icon in 2001. In fact, it could be argued that Erickson deserves a special place of honor on this list in that he appears to have pulled off the unlikely feat of returning from the dead. Rolling Stone, after all, wrote an obituary for Rocky and the band way back in December 1968. But more than 40 years later, in 2010, Erickson released an album of new material entitled True Love Cast Out All Evil. That disc was released, naturally enough, on April 20. And in March of 2012, Rocky completed his first ever tour of Australia and New Zealand. One final note on Erickson. In 1990, a tribute album containing covers of Rocky's songs by such artists as R.E.M. and ZZ Top was released. The title of that collection, Where the Pyramid Meets the Eye, a tribute to Rocky Erickson was an obvious reference to the Masonic symbol that graces the back of the U.S. dollar and that plays such a key role in various one-world conspiracy theories. The title was derived from a comment made by Erickson. And with that, I think we can move on now from the Laurel Canyon death list, at least temporarily. The list is not yet complete, mind you, since we have only covered the years 1966 to 1976. Rest assured, then, that we will continue to add names as we follow the various threads of this story. Lots of names. It is, as it turns out, an inordinately long list. Chapter 5. Desirable People the canyon's peculiar past. Charles R. Chuck Heath was born in March of 1938. The family lived on Farmdale Avenue near the base of Laurel Canyon, close to where Studio City is located today. Jeffrey Dunn, writing in The Lies of Sarah Palin. Chuck Heath is Sarah Palin's father. Until around 1913, Laurel Canyon remained an undeveloped slice of L.A., a pristine wilderness area, rich in native flora and fauna. That all began to change when Charles Spencer Mann and his partners began buying up land along what would become Laurel Canyon Boulevard, as well as on Lookout Mountain. A narrow road leading up to the crest of Lookout Mountain was carved out, and upon that crest was constructed a lavish 75-room inn with sweeping views of the city below and the Pacific Ocean beyond. The Lookout Inn featured a large ballroom, riding stables, tennis courts, and a golf course, among other amenities. 
But the inn, alas, would only stand for a decade. In 1923, it burned down, as tends to happen rather frequently in Laurel Canyon. In 1913, man began operating what was billed as the nation's first trackless trolley to ferry tourists and prospective buyers from Sunset Boulevard up to what would become the corner of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Lookout Mountain Avenue. Around that same time, he built a massive tavern roadhouse on that very same corner. Dubbed the Laurel Tavern, the structure boasted a 2,000-plus square foot formal dining room, guest rooms, and a bowling alley on the basement level. The Laurel Tavern, of course, would later be acquired by Tom Mix, after which it would be affectionately known as the Log Cabin. Shortly after the log cabin was built, a department store mogul, or a wealthy furniture manufacturer, there is more than one version of the story, or perhaps the man owned more than one business, built an imposing castle-like mansion across the road at the corner of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and what would become Willow Glen Road. The home featured rather creepy towers and parapets, and the foundation is said to have been riddled with secret passageways, tunnels, and hidden chambers. The grounds of the estate were laced with trails leading to grottos, elaborate stone benches, and hidden caves and tunnels. Across Laurel Canyon Boulevard, the grounds of the Laurel Tavern Log Cabin were also laced with odd caves and tunnels. As Michael Walker notes in Laurel Canyon, Running up the hillside, behind the house, was a collection of man-made caves built out of stucco with electric wiring and light bulbs inside. According to various accounts, one secret tunnel running under what is now Laurel Canyon Boulevard connected the log cabin, or its guest house, to the Houdini estate. This claim is frequently denounced as an urban legend, but given that both properties are known to possess unusual geological features, it's not hard to believe that the tunnel system on one property was connected at one time to the tunnel system on the other. The tavern itself, as Gail Zappa would later describe it, was huge and vault-like and cavernous. With these two rather unusual structures anchoring an otherwise undeveloped canyon, and the Lookout Inn sitting atop uninhabited Lookout Mountain. Man set about marketing the canyon as a vacation and leisure destination. The land that he carved up into subdivisions with names like Bungalow Land and Wonderland Park was presented as the ideal location to build vacation homes. But the new inn and roadhouse and the new parcels of land for sale definitely weren't for everyone. The roadhouse was essentially a country club, or what Jack Boulware of Mojo described as a masculine retreat for wealthy men. And bungalow land was openly advertised as a high-class restricted park for desirable people only. Desirable people, of course, tended to be wealthy people without a great deal of skin pigmentation. As the website of the current Laurel Canyon Association notes, restrictive covenants were attached to the new parcel deeds. These were thinly veiled attempts to limit ownership to white males of a certain class. 
While there are many references to the bigotry of the developers in our area, it would appear that some residents were also prone to bias and lawlessness. This article was published in a local paper in 1925. Frank Sanseri, the man who was flogged by self-styled white knights on Lookout Mountain in Hollywood several months ago, was found not guilty by a jury in Superior Judge Shea's courtroom of having unlawfully attacked Astria Jolly, aged 11. Wealthier residents were also attracted to Laurel Canyon. With the creation of the Hollywood film industry in 1910, the canyon attracted a host of photo players, including Wally Reed, Tom Mix, Clara Bow, Richard Dix, Norman Carey, Ramon Navarro, Harry Houdini, and Bessie Love. The author of this little slice of Laurel Canyon history would clearly like us to believe that the wealthier residents were a group quite separate from the violent vigilantes roaming the canyon. The history of such groups in Los Angeles, however, clearly suggests otherwise. Paul Young, for example, has written in L.A. Exposed of Los Angeles's early vigilance committees, which stepped in to take care of outlaws on their own, often with the complete absolution of the mayor himself. Judge Lynch, for example, formed the Los Angeles Rangers in 1854 with some of the city's top judges, lawyers, and businessmen, including tycoon Phineas Banning of the Banning Railroad. And there was the Los Angeles Home Guard, another bloodthirsty paramilitary organization made up of notable citizens, and the much-feared El Monte Rangers, a group of Texas Wranglers that specialized in killing Mexicans. As one would expect, there was no regard for the victims' rights in such kangaroo courts. Victims were often dragged from their homes, jail cells, even churches, and beaten, horsewhipped, tortured, mutilated, or castrated before being strung up on the nearest tree. Before moving on, I need to mention here that of the eight celebrity residents of Laurel Canyon listed by the association, Fully half died under questionable circumstances, and three of the four did so on days with occult significance. While Bessie Love, Norman Carey, Richard Dix, and Clara Bow all lived long and healthy lives, Ramon Navarro, as we have already seen, was ritually murdered in his home on Laurel Canyon Boulevard on the eve of Halloween 1968. On January 18, 1923, matinee idol Wallace Reed was found dead in a padded cell at the mental institution to which he had been confined. Just 31 years old, Reed's death was attributed to his morphine addiction, though it was never explained how he would have fed that habit while confined to a cell in a mental hospital. Tom Mix died on a lonely stretch of Arizona highway in the proverbial single-car crash on October 12, 1940, the birthday of notorious occultist Alistair Crowley. When he quite unexpectedly encountered some temporary construction barricades that had been set up alongside a reportedly washed-out bridge, Although he wasn't speeding, by most accounts, Mix was nevertheless allegedly unable to stop in time and veered off the road, 
while a crew of what were described as workmen reportedly looked on. It wasn't the impact that killed Mix, though, but rather a severe blow to the back of the head and neck, purportedly delivered during the crash by an aluminum case he had been carrying in the back seat of his car. There is now a roadside marker at the spot where Mix died. If you should happen to stop by to have a look, you may as well pay a visit to the Florence Military Reservation as well, since it's just a stone's throw away. Harry Houdini died on Halloween Day, 1926, purportedly of an attack of appendicitis, precipitated by a blow to the stomach. The problem with that story, however, is that medical science now recognizes it to be an impossibility. According to a recent book about the famed illusionist, The Secret Life of Houdini, by William Kalish and Larry Sloman, Houdini was likely murdered by poisoning. Questions have been raised, the book notes, by the curious lack of an autopsy, an experimental serum that Houdini was apparently given in the hospital, and indications that his wife, Bess, may have been poisoned as well, though she survived. On March 23, 2007, an exhumation of Houdini's remains was formally requested by his surviving family members. It is unclear at this time when or even if that will happen. Houdini's death on October 31, 1926, came exactly eight years after the first death to occur in what would become known as the Houdini House. In 1918, not long after the home was built, a lover's quarrel arose on one of the home's balconies during a Halloween birthday party. The gay lover of the original owner's son reportedly ended up splattered on the ground below. According to legend, the businessman succeeded in getting his son off the hook, but only after paying off everyone he could find to pay off, including the trial judge. The aftermath of the party proved to be financially devastating for the family, and the home was apparently put up for sale. Not long after that, as fate would have it, Harry Houdini was looking for a place to stay in the Hollywood area as he had decided to break into the motion picture business. He found the perfect home in Laurel Canyon, the home that would, forever after, carry his name. By most accounts, he lived there from about 1919 through the early 1920s, during a brief movie career in which he starred in a handful of Hollywood films. A key scene in one of those films, The Grim Game, was reportedly shot at the top of Lookout Mountain, very near where the Lookout Inn then stood. On October 31, 1959, Precisely 30 years after Houdini's death, and 41 years after the unnamed party guest's death, the distinctive mansion on the corner of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Willow Glen Road burned to the ground in a fire of mysterious origin. The ruins of the estate remain today undisturbed for nearly 50 years. On October 31, 1981, exactly 22 years after the fire across the road, the legendary log cabin on the other side of Laurel Canyon Boulevard also burned to the ground in yet another fire of mysterious origin. Some reports speculated that it was a drug lab explosion. 
and 25 years after that, on October 31, 2006, The Secret Life of Houdini was published, challenging the conventional wisdom on Houdini's death. Far more compelling than the revelations about Houdini's death, however, was something else about the illusionist that the book revealed for the first time. Harry Houdini was engaged in doing intelligence work for both the U.S. Secret Service and Scotland Yard, and his traveling escape act, as it turns out, was pretty much a cover for those activities, in very much the same way that an actor by the name of John Wilkes Booth appears to have used his career as a traveling stage performer as a cover for intelligence operations. It is a time-honored tradition that seems to remain largely unchanged to this day. The Sloman book, of course, doesn't make such reckless allegations about any performers other than Houdini. What the book does do, however, is compellingly document that Houdini was, in fact, an intelligence asset who used his magic act as a cover. Not only did the authors obtain corroborating documentation from Scotland Yard, they also received an endorsement of their claim from no less an authority than John McLaughlin, former acting director of the Central Intelligence Agency. It appears, then, that of the eight celebrity residents of Laurel Canyon listed on the Laurel Canyon Association website, at least two, Navarro and Houdini, and quite possibly as many as four, were murdered. That seems like a rather high homicide rate, given that, statistically speaking, a white person in this country has about a 1 in 345,000 chance of being murdered. Non-white persons, of course, have a far greater chance of becoming the victims of a homicide, but nowhere near the one in four to one in two odds that a white celebrity living in Laurel Canyon faced. Statistically speaking, if you were a famous actor in the 1920s, you would have been better off playing a round of Russian roulette than living in Laurel Canyon. Anyway... Two ambitious projects in the 1940s brought significant changes to Laurel Canyon. First, Laurel Canyon Boulevard was extended into the San Fernando Valley, providing access to the canyon from both the north and the south. The boulevard became a winding thoroughfare, providing direct access to the west side from the valley. Traffic, needless to say, increased considerably, which probably worked out well for the planners of the other project, because it meant that the increased traffic brought about by that other project probably wasn't noticed at all. And that's good, you see, because the other project was a secret one. What would become known as Lookout Mountain Laboratory was originally envisioned as a fortified air defense center. Built in 1941 and nestled in two and a half secluded acres off what is now Wonderland Park Avenue, the installation was hidden from view and surrounded by an electrified fence. By 1947, the facility featured a fully operational movie studio. In fact, it is claimed that it was the world's only completely self-contained movie studio. 
With 100,000 square feet of floor space, the covert studio included sound stages, screening rooms, film processing labs, editing facilities, an animation department, and 17 climate-controlled film vaults. It also had a helicopter pad and a bomb shelter. Over its lifetime, the studio produced some 19,000 classified motion pictures, more than all the Hollywood studios combined, which I guess makes Laurel Canyon the real motion picture capital of the world. Officially, the facility was run by the U.S. Air Force and did nothing more nefarious than process AEC footage of atomic and nuclear bomb tests. The studio, however, was clearly equipped to do far more than just process film. There are indications that Lookout Mountain Laboratory had an advanced research and development department that was on the cutting edge of new film technologies. Such technological advances as 3D effects were apparently first developed at the Laurel Canyon site. And Hollywood luminaries like John Ford, Jimmy Stewart, Howard Hawks, Ronald Reagan, Bing Crosby, Walt Disney, Hedda Hopper, and Marilyn Monroe were given clearance to work at the facility on undisclosed projects. There is no indication that any of them ever spoke of their work at the clandestine studio. The facility retained as many as 250 producers, directors, technicians, editors, animators, etc., both civilian and military, all with top security clearances, and all reporting to work in a secluded corner of Laurel Canyon. Accounts vary as to when the facility ceased operations. Some claim it was in 1969, while others say the facility remained in operation longer. In any event, by all accounts, the secret bunker had been up and running for more than 20 years before Laurel Canyon's rebellious teen years, and it remained operational for the most turbulent of those years. The existence of the facility remained unknown to the general public until the early 1990s, though it had long been rumored that the CIA operated a secret movie studio somewhere in or near Hollywood. Filmmaker Peter Curran was the first to learn of its existence through classified documents he obtained while researching his 1995 documentary, Trinity and Beyond. And yet, even today, nearly 20 years after its limited public disclosure, one would have trouble finding even a single mention of this secret military intelligence facility anywhere in the conspiracy literature. I think we can all agree, though, that there is nothing the least bit suspicious about a covert military facility operating in the epicenter of hippie culture. So let's move on. In the 1950s, as Barney Hoskins has written in Hotel California, Laurel Canyon was home to all the hippest young actors, including, according to Hoskins, Marlon Brando, James Dean, James Coburn, and Dennis Hopper. It was home to Natalie Wood as well. In fact, Natalie lived in the very home that Cass Elliott would later turn into a Laurel Canyon party house. And like the home's later occupant, Wood died young under rather mysterious circumstances. 
as did, to a lesser extent, Canyonite James Dean. And as did, come to think of it, a few other people with very close ties to Canyonite Dennis Hopper. Dean, Hopper's close friend and co-star, died in a near-head-on collision on September 30, 1955, at the tender age of 24. Then there was Nick Adams, who had formerly roomed with Hopper. Like Hopper, Adams had worked alongside James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. According to Dean himself, Adams had worked alongside Dean even earlier than that, when both were young male prostitutes working the mean streets of Hollywood. Adams died on February 6, 1968, at the age of 36, in his home at 2126 El Roble Lane in Coldwater Canyon, one canyon west of Laurel Canyon, thus narrowly sparing Adams from a spot on the Laurel Canyon death list. Adams' official cause of death was listed as suicide, of course, but no one really seems to believe that. Actor Forrest Tucker has bluntly declared that all of Hollywood knows Nick Adams was knocked off. Nick's relatives reportedly received numerous hang-up calls on the day of his death, and his tape recorder, journals, and various other papers and personal effects were conspicuously missing from his home. His lifeless body, sitting upright in a chair, was discovered by his attorney, Irvin Tip Roeder. On June 10, 1981, Roeder and his wife, actress Jenny Maxwell, best known for being spanked by Elvis in Blue Hawaii, were gunned down outside their Beverly Hills condo. Next to fall was Sal Minio, who, like Dean and Adams, worked with Hopper on Rebel Without a Cause and remained a friend thereafter. Like Hopper, Minio was a regular in the Sunset Strip clubs where the Doors, Love, the Birds, and the Mothers played. He had been alongside Hopper and Peter Fonda during the infamous riot on the Sunset Strip in November 1966, and as has already been discussed, Minio was stabbed to death in close proximity to those very same clubs on February 12, 1976. Last of all was Natalie Wood, who also appeared in Rebel Without a Cause, and who had at various times dated both Dennis Hopper and Nick Adams. Woods died on November 29, 1981, in a drowning incident off Catalina Island that has never been adequately explained. At the time, she was in the company of actors Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken. Natalie was 43 when she was laid to rest. Of the four actors stricken with what has been dubbed the Rebel Without a Cause curse, two were former residents of Laurel Canyon. Another lived at, or was killed at, the mouth of the canyon. And the fourth lived just a mile away, as the crow flies, in neighboring Coldwater Canyon. As I may have mentioned previously, Laurel Canyon seems to be a rather dangerous place to live. The list of famous former residents of Laurel Canyon also includes the names W.C. Fields, Mary Astor, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, Errol Flynn, Orson Welles, and Robert Mitchum, who was infamously arrested on marijuana charges in 1948 
at 8334 Ridpath Drive, the same street that would later be home to rockers Roger McGinn, Don Henley, and Glenn Fry, as well as Paul Rothschild, producer of both The Doors and Love. Mitchum's arrest, by the way, appears to have been a thoroughly staged affair that cemented his Hollywood bad boy image and gave his career quite a boost, but I guess that's not really relevant here. Another famous resident of Laurel Canyon was science fiction writer Robert Heinlein, who resided at 8775 Lookout Mountain Avenue. Like so many other characters in this story, Heinlein was a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, and he had served as a naval officer. After that, he embarked on a successful writing career, and despite the fact that he was, by any objective measure, a rabid right-winger, his work was warmly embraced by the flower power generation. If that capsule biography sounds vaguely familiar, by the way, it is probably because it is virtually identical to the biography of a guy named L. Ron Hubbard, whom you may have heard of. Heinlein's best-known work is the novel Stranger in a Strange Land, which many in the Laurel Canyon scene found to be hugely influential. Ed Sanders has written in The Family that the book helped provide a theoretical basis for Manson's family. Charlie frequently used strange land terminology when addressing his flock, and he named his first family-born son Valentine Michael Manson in honor of the book's lead character. David Crosby was a big Heinlein fan as well. In his autobiography, he references Heinlein on more than one occasion and proclaims that, in a society where people can go armed, it makes everybody a little more polite, as Robert Heinlein says in his books. Frank Zappa was also a member of the Robert Heinlein fan club. Barry Miles notes in his biography of the rock icon that his home contained a copy of St. Exupery's The Little Prince and other essential 60s reading, including Robert Heinlein's sci-fi classic Stranger in a Strange Land, from which Zappa borrowed the word discorporate for the song Absolutely Free. And that, fearless readers, brings us to the Laurel Canyon era that we are primarily concerned with, the wild and woolly 1960s. But before returning to that era, what conclusions can be drawn from this brief look at early Canyon history? For one, it appears that murder and random acts of violence have been a part of the culture of the Canyon since the earliest days of its development. It also appears that intelligence operatives posing as entertainers have likewise been a part of the canyon scene since the earliest days. And finally, it seems that intelligence operatives who didn't even bother to pose as entertainers were streaming into the canyon to report to work at Lookout Mountain Laboratory for at least 20 years before the first rock star set foot there. We're supposed to believe that all of the musical icons who settled in Laurel Canyon in the 1960s and 1970s just sort of spontaneously came together. One finds the word serendipitous sprinkled freely throughout the literature. 
But how many peculiar coincidences do we have to overlook in order to believe that this was just a chance gathering? Let's suppose, hypothetically speaking, that you happen to be Jim Morrison and have recently arrived in Laurel Canyon and now find yourself fronting a band that is on the verge of taking the country by storm. Just a mile or so down Laurel Canyon Boulevard from you lives another guy who also recently arrived in Laurel Canyon and who also happens to front a band on the verge of stardom. He happens to be married to a girl that you attended kindergarten with, and her dad, like yours, was involved in atomic weapons research and testing. Admiral George Morrison, for a time, did classified work at White Sands. Her husband's dad, meanwhile, is involved in another type of WMD research, chemical warfare. This other guy's business partner, manager, is a spooky ex-Marine who just happens to have a cousin who, bizarrely enough, also fronts a rock band on the verge of superstardom. And this third rock star on the rise also happens to live in Laurel Canyon, just a mile or two from your house, just down a couple of other streets. Also within walking distance of your home live two other kids who, wouldn't you know it, also happened to front a new rock and roll band. These two kids happened to attend the same Alexandria, Virginia high school that you attended. And one of them also attended Annapolis, just like your dad did, and just like your kindergarten friend's dad did. Though most all of you hail from the Washington, D.C. area, you now find yourselves on the opposite side of the country in an isolated canyon high above the city of Los Angeles where you are all clustered around a secret military installation. Given his background in research on atomic weapons, your father is probably familiar to some extent with the existence and operations of Lookout Mountain Laboratory, as is the father of your kindergarten friend. The question that naturally arises here, I suppose, is this. What do you suppose the odds are that all of that just came together purely by chance? When early installments of this story were posted online, I received a fair amount of negative feedback. Among other things, I was accused of inferring guilt by association and of engaging in character assassination. One rather strident respondent complained that it was unfair to take a few isolated facts about an individual and use them to paint a sinister picture. To some extent, these are valid complaints. And yes, it is fairly easy to gather together a few different isolated facts and use them to paint a much different portrait of these artists and pen an impassioned defense of any of them. Jim Morrison and Frank Zappa seem to have the most rabid fans, by the way, in case anyone was wondering. But what I ask is that you try to stand back and take in the big picture, and then ask yourself the following question. Exactly how many coincidences does it take to make a conspiracy? And yes, by the way, I am very much aware of the fact that Jim Morrison was fond of telling interviewers that his parents were dead, and that, according to legend, he did so because they were, in essence, dead to him. 
But as one photograph reveals, Jim's dad wasn't dead to him just months before his emergence as a rock star. The photo reproduced at the front of this book shows the two Morrisons on the bridge of the USS Bonham Richard in January 1964. It seems rather obvious to me that telling people that your parents are dead could be a very effective way of avoiding talking about who your father really is. It was such an effective strategy, in fact, that it took over four decades for the truth to finally come out. Chapter 6. Vito and his Freakers. The Sinister Roots of Hippie Culture. Call them freaks, the underground, the counterculture, flower children, or hippies. They are all loose labels for the youth culture of the 60s. Barry Miles, author of Hippie. Vito was in his 50s, but he had four-way sex with goddesses. He held these clay sculpting classes on Laurel Avenue, teaching rich Beverly Hill dowagers how to sculpt. And that was the birds' rehearsal room. Then Jim Dixon had the idea to put them on at Ciro's, on the basis that all the freaks would show up and the birds would be their beetles. Kim Fowley. This is how I remember my life. Other folks may not have had the same memories, even though we might have shared some of the same experiences. So begins David Crosby's autobiography, Long Time Gone, co-written by Carl Gottlieb. As it turns out, quite a few other folks seem to remember some people in Crosby's life who were all but ignored in the lengthy book. The names are casually dropped only once, and not by Crosby, but rather in a quote from Bird's manager Jim Dixon, in which he describes the scene at the Sunset Strip clubs when the birds were playing. We had them all. We had Jack Nicholson dancing. We had Peter Fonda dancing with Odetta. We had Vito and his freakers. Following that brief mention by Dixon, Gottlieb briefly explains to readers that Vito and his freakers were an acid-drenched extended family of brain-damaged cohabitants. And that, in an incredibly self-indulgent 489-page tome, is the only mention you will find of Vito and his freakers, despite the fact that by just about all other accounts, the group dismissed as brain-damaged cohabitants played a crucial role in the early success of Crosby's band, and in the early success of Arthur Lee's band, and in the early success of Frank Zappa's band, and in the early success of Jim Morrison's band, but especially in the early success of David Crosby's band. As Barry Miles noted in his biography of Frank Zappa, the birds were closely associated with Vito and the Freaks, Vito Palikas, his wife Sue, and Carl Franzoni, the leaders of a group of about 35 dancers whose antics enlivened the birds' early gigs. In Waiting for the Sun, Barney Hoskins wrote that the early success of the birds and other bands was due in no small part to the roving troupe of self-styled freaks led by ancient beatnik Vito Palikas and his trusty, lusty... This offer little more than a few first names. 
with no consensus agreement on how those first names are even spelled. Carl, K-A-R-L, and C-A-R-L appear interchangeably, as do S-Z-O-U and Z-S-O-U for Sue, and G-O-D-O-T and G-O-D-O. But for you, dear readers, because I am a giver, I have gone the extra mile and sifted through the detritus to dig up at least some of the sordid details. By all accounts, the troop was led by one Vito Policus, whose full name was Vitotus Alfonso Policus, born the son of a Lithuanian sausage maker on May 20, 1913. Vito hailed from Lawrence, Massachusetts, though some accounts claim it was Lowell, Massachusetts. Parents John and Rose Policus had three other kids, giving Vito an older sister named Albina and two younger brothers, Bronislo and John. Some accounts claim that from a young age, Vito developed a habit of running afoul of the law. According to Miles, for example, Vito spent a year and a half in a reformatory as a teenager and was busted several times after that. A family member, though, disputes those claims. What isn't disputed is that in 1938, he was convicted of armed robbery and handed a 25-year sentence following a botched attempt at holding up a movie theater. In 1932, at the height of the Great Depression, he had won a marathon dance competition held at Revere Beach. His winnings had given him a taste of the good life that he was thereafter unable to sustain, leading to the robbery attempt. In 1942, just four years after his conviction, Vito was released into the custody, so to speak, of the U.S. Merchant Marines, a branch of the U.S. Navy during wartime, ostensibly to escort ships running lend-lease missions. Following his release from the service, circa 1946, he arrived in Los Angeles. Two years later, a curious event played out in another part of the country, as documented in the February 23, 1948 edition of Time magazine. One morning last week, bespectacled Bryant Bowden, editor of the weekly Okeechobee, Florida News, sauntered into the Okeechobee courthouse and stopped to eye the bulletin board in the main hall. Among the marriage license applications, which, by Florida law, must be publicly posted for three days before a ceremony, he saw something which made him goggle. Winthrop Rockefeller, 35, of New York, the fourth of John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s five sons, and one of the most eligible bachelors in the world, had stated his intention of marrying one Eva Sears, also of New York. Editor Bowden had a bitter moment. His paper would not be published for two days. Then he remembered that he was the Okeechobee correspondent for the Associated Press. He telephoned the AP office in Jacksonville. A few hours later, the whole U.S. journalistic horizon glowed a bright pink with the fireworks he had touched off. While the first headlines blazed, and while Manhattan gossip columnists scrambled to assure their readers they had known all about the romance for months, herds of reporters were dispatched to find an answer to the question, who is Eva Sears? Hearst's Colleen Knickerbocker, 
Gigi Cassini, haughtily announced that she was Mrs. Barbara Paul Sears of the fine old Philadelphia Pauls and thus a society girl of impeccable pedigree. He was wrong. Indeed he was. So who was this mystery woman? This woman who, as it turns out, had once had a brief career in Hollywood before moving to Paris and taking a job as a secretary at the U.S. Embassy. She appears to have gone by many names at different times in her life, including Eva Paul, Eva Paul Sears, Barbara Paul, Barbara Paul Sears, and Bobo Rockefeller. None of them, however, was the name she was given at the time of her birth. As time noted, her parents were Lithuanian immigrants, and she was born Yvette Polycute in a coal patch near Noblestown, Pennsylvania. Even that, however, was not her real name, at least not by American custom and tradition. In her parents' homeland, Polycute is the feminine version of Polycus, Eva Paul's father, as it turns out, just happened to be the brother of Vito Polikas's father, a fact verified by and brought to my attention by a member of the Polikas family. I'm no genealogist, but I'm pretty sure that that means that the self-styled king of the hippies was, improbably enough, a first cousin of Bobo Rockefeller and a cousin-in-law, for lack of a better term, of Winthrop Rockefeller himself. Vito is also a cousin of the couple's only child, Winthrop Paul Rockefeller, who would later serve as the lieutenant governor of the state of Arkansas. The Polikas family, alas, missed Winthrop and Bobo's day of celebration. According to time, Bobo's mother and stepfather were unable to attend the ceremony because they were making a batch of Lithuanian cheese on their Indiana farm. I guess we all have our priorities. Truth be told, though, the Polikas clan has a somewhat different explanation. They were deliberately excluded from the ceremony, as it was felt they were a bit too uncultured to break bread with the likes of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and the Marquess of Blanford. As for Vito, he appears to have rather quickly established himself in Los Angeles as a respected artist-sculptor. As early as August of 1949, the Los Angeles Times announced that an art exhibition at the Biltmore Hotel was to feature his work. In May of 1956, another announcement held that there would be an exhibit by Vito and his students to be held at the Vito Clay Studios on Laurel Avenue. Another announcement in February of 1958 alerted readers that a gallery on La Cienega Boulevard would be featuring the work of sculptor Vito Bulica. And the next year, in May 1959, a gallery on Beverly Boulevard was scheduled to host an exhibit featuring works from Vito Clay Studios. Also during the decade of the 1950s, Vito married and fathered two children, though that marriage had melted down by the time the 1960s rolled around. It was Vito's second marriage, his first having been to a teen bride back in his marathon dancing days before his prison stint. On July 7, 1961, he married yet again to the aforementioned Sue, 
whose real name was Susan Cynthia Schaefer. Vita was 48 at the time, and Sue was just 18. She had been only 16 when they met. Vito and Sue made their home in an unassuming building at the corner of Laurel Avenue and Beverly Boulevard, just below the mouth of Laurel Canyon, and practically within spitting distance of J.C. Brings Hair Salon. At street level was Sue's clothing boutique, which has been credited by some seamsters with being the very first to introduce hippie fashions. Upstairs were living quarters for Vito, Sue, and their firstborn son, Godo. Downstairs was what was known as the Vito Clay Studio, where, according to Miles and various others, Polikas made a living of sorts by giving clay modeling lessons to Beverly Hills matrons who found the atmosphere in his studio exciting. According to most accounts, it wasn't really the Mayan tomb decor of the studio that many of the matrons found so exciting, but rather Vito's reportedly insatiable sexual appetite and John Holmesian physique. In any event, Vito's students also apparently included such Hollywood luminaries as Jonathan Winters, Mickey Rooney, and Steve Allen. As for his erstwhile sidekick, Carl Orestes Franzoni, he has claimed in interviews that his mother was a countess and his father was a stone carver from Rutland, Vermont. The family was brought from Italy, from the quarries in the northern part of Italy, to cut the stone for the monuments of the United States. That would make his ancestors, it stands to reason, of considerable importance in the Masonic community, and there were in fact a couple of brothers named Franzoni who were brought over from Italy in the early 1900s to carve the Masonic monuments of Washington. According to Ina Thayer Frari's They Built the Capitol, Giuseppe Franzoni, who came over with his brother Carlo, had especially good family connections in Italy, he being a nephew of Cardinal Franzoni, and son of the president of the Academy of Fine Arts at Carrara. Also making their way to the New World were Francisco Irdella, a cousin of the Franzoni brothers, and Giovanni Andre, a brother-in-law of Giuseppe Franzoni. By Carl Franzoni's own account, he himself grew up as something of a young hoodlum in Cincinnati, Ohio, and later went into business with some shady Sicilian characters selling mail-order breast and penis pumps out of an address at L.A.'s fabled Melrose Avenue. As Franzoni remembered it, his business partner's name was Scalacci, Joe Scalacci, the same name as the famous murderer Scalacci, probably from the same family. Probably so. Franzoni, born circa 1934, hooked up with the older Polika sometime around 1963, and soon after became his constant sidekick. Also in the troupe was a young Rory Flynn, Canyonite Errol Flynn's statuesque daughter, a bizarre character named Ricky Applebaum, who had half a mustache on one side of his face and half a beard on the other, most of the young girls who would later become part of Frank Zappa's GTO project, and a lot of other colorful characters who donned pseudonyms like Linda Bopp, Butchie, Beetle Bob, Emerald, and Karen Yum Yum.
Also flitting about the periphery of the dance troupe were Navy brat Gail Slotman and a curious character on the L.A. music scene by the name of Kim Fowley. Slotman and Fowley were for a time closely allied and even cut a record together, America's Sweethearts, that Fowley produced. In 1966, Fowley produced a record for Vito as well, billed as Vito and the Hands, the seven-inch single, Where It's At, which featured the musicianship of some of Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention cohorts, came no closer to entering the charts than did Fowley and Slotman's effort. Slotman, though, soon found work as an assistant to and booking agent for Elmer Valentine, whom we will meet shortly. Fowley, as with so many other characters in this story, has a rather interesting history. He was born in 1939, the son of actor Douglas Fowley, a World War II Navy veteran and attendee of St. Francis Xavier Military Academy. According to the younger Fowley's account, he was initially abandoned to a foster home, but later taken back and raised by his father. He grew up in upscale Malibu, California, where he shared his childhood home with a bunch of actors and guys from the Navy. At the age of six and a half, Fowley had an unusual experience that he later shared with author Michael Walker. Dressed up in a sailor suit by his dad and his Navy buddies, he was taken to a photographer named William, who took a picture of me in the sailor suit. His studio was next door to the Canyon Country Store. Right after that, he was driven down Laurel Canyon Boulevard to the near-mythical Schwab's Drugstore, where everybody cheered, and two chorus girls grabbed my six-year-old cock and balls and stuck a candy cigarette in my mouth. It's probably safe to assume that childhood experiences such as that helped to prepare Fowley for his later employment as a young male street hustler, a profession that he practiced on the seedy streets of the City of Angels, by Fowley's own account, I should add, just as it was James Dean himself who claimed to have worked those same streets with Nick Adams. Following that, Fowley spent some time serving with the Army National Guard, after which he devoted his life to working in the L.A. music industry as a musician, writer, and producer, as well as, according to some accounts, a master manipulator. Around 1957, Fowley played in a band known as the Sleepwalkers, alongside future Beach Boy Bruce Johnston, at times a diminutive young guitarist named Phil Spector, who had moved out to L.A. with his mother not too many years earlier, following the suicide of his father when Phil was just nine, sat in with the group. During the 1960s, Fowley was best known for producing such ridiculous yet beloved novelty songs as the Hollywood Argyles' Alley Oop and the Rivingtons' Papa Um Mau Mau, though he also did more respectable work, such as collaborating on some Birds tracks and having some of his original songs covered by both the Beach Boys and the Flying Burrito Brothers. In 1975, Fowley would have perhaps his greatest success when he created The Runaways, further lowering the bar that Frank Zappa had already set rather low some years earlier when he had created and recorded the GTOs. 
the Runaways featured underage versions of Joan Jett and Lita Ford, whom Fowley tastefully attired in leather and lingerie. As he would later boast, everyone loved the idea of 16-year-old girls playing guitars and singing about fucking. Some of the young girls in the band, including Cherry Curry, would later accuse Fowley of requiring them to perform sexual services for him and his associates as a prerequisite for membership in the group. Prior to assembling The Runaways, one of Fowley's proudest accomplishments was producing the 1969 album I'm Back and I'm Proud by rockabilly pioneer Gene Vincent, featuring backing vocals by Canyonite Linda Ronstadt. Just two years later, Vincent, a Navy veteran raised in that penultimate Navy town, Norfolk, Virginia, died unexpectedly on October 12, 1971, due reportedly to a ruptured stomach ulcer. Not long before his death, Vincent had been on tour in the UK, but he had hastily returned to the US due to pressure from, among others, promoter Don Arden. Known none too affectionately as the Al Capone of pop, Arden had a penchant for guns and violence, and he was known to openly boast of his affiliation with powerful organized crime figures. In addition to being a business partner of the equally nefarious Michael Jeffrey, Arden was also the father of Sharon Osbourne and the former manager of her husband's band, Black Sabbath. But here I have surely digressed, so let's try to bring this back around to where we left off. At least as early as 1962, not long before Carl Franzoni joined the group, the Freak Troop was already hitting the clubs a couple of nights each week to refine their unique style of dance, perhaps best described as an epileptic seizure set to music, and show off their distinctively unappealing, though soon to be quite popular, fashion sets. In those early days, they danced to local black R&B bands, and to a band out of Fresno known as the Gauchos, in dives far removed from the fabled Sunset Strip, because, Franzoni has said, there were no white bands in L.A. yet, and there were no clubs on Sunset Boulevard. That, of course, was all about to quickly change. As if by magic, new clubs began to spring up along the legendary Sunset Strip beginning around 1964, and old clubs considered to be long past their prime miraculously re-emerged. In January 1964, a young Chicago vice cop named Elmer Valentine opened the doors to the now world-famous Whiskey-A-Go-Go nightclub. Just over a year later, in spring of 1965, he opened a second, soon-to-be-wildly-popular club, The Trip. Not long before that, near the end of 1964, the legendary Ciro's nightclub began undergoing extensive renovations. Opened in 1940 by Billy Wilkerson, an associate of Bugsy Siegel, the upscale club had flourished for the first 20 years of its existence with a clientele that regularly included Hollywood royalty and organized crime figures. By the early 1960s, though, the strip was dead, and the once prestigious club had gone to seed. 
Ciro's reopened in early 1965, just before the trip opened its doors, and just in time, as it turns out, to host the very first club appearance by the musical act that was about to become the first Laurel Canyon band to commit a song to vinyl, The Birds. By 1967, Gazaris had opened up on the strip as well, and in the early 1970s, Valentine would open yet another club that endures to this day, the Roxy. Smaller clubs like the London Fog, where the Doors got their first bookings as the house band in early 1966, opened their doors to the public in the mid-1960s as well. The timing of the opening of Valentine's first two clubs and the reopening of Ciro's could not have been any more fortuitous. The paint was barely dry on the walls of the new clubs when bands like Love and The Doors and The Birds and Buffalo Springfield and The Turtles and The Mothers of Invention and The Mamas and The Papas and The Lovin' Spoonful came knocking. The problem, however, was that the new clubs were not yet known to the general public. Ciro's had been long left for dead, and nobody had the slightest idea who any of these newfangled bands were. What was needed, then, was a way to create a buzz around the clubs that would draw people in and kickstart the strip back to life, as well as, of course, launch the careers of the new bands. The bands themselves could not be expected to fill the new clubs, since besides being unknown, they also, and yeah, I know that you don't really want to hear this, and I will undoubtedly be deluged with letters of complaint, but I'm going to say it anyway, weren't very good, at least not in their live incarnations. To be sure, they sounded great on vinyl, but that was largely due to the fact that the band members themselves didn't actually play on their records, at least not in the early days. And the rich vocal harmonies that were a trademark of the Laurel Canyon sound were created in the studio with a good deal of multi-tracking and overdubs. On stage, it was another matter entirely. Enter then the wildly flamboyant and colorful Freak Squad, who were one key component of the strategy that was devised to lure patrons into the clubs. Vito and Carl's dancers were a fixture on the Sunset Strip scene from the very moment that the new clubs opened their doors to the public, and they were, by all accounts, treated like royalty by the club owners. As John Hartman, proprietor of the Kaleidoscope Club and brother of comedian Phil Hartman acknowledged he would let Vito and his dancers into the Kaleidoscope free every week because they attracted people. They were really hippies, and so we had to have them. They got in free pretty much everywhere they went. They blessed your joint. They validated you. If they're the essence of hippiedom and you're trying to be a hippie nightclub, you need hippies. As the aforementioned Kim Fowley put it, with characteristic bluntness, a band didn't have to be good as long as the dancers were there. Indeed, the band was largely irrelevant, other than to provide some semblance of a soundtrack for the real show, which was taking place on the dance floor. Gail Zappa once candidly admitted that even at her husband's shows, the real attraction was not on the stage. 
The customers came to see the freaks dance. Nobody ever talks about that, but that was the case. Frank Zappa added, as soon as they arrived, they would make things happen because they were dancing in a way nobody had seen before, screaming and yelling out on the floor and doing all kinds of weird things. They were dressed in a way that nobody could believe, and they gave life to everything that was going on. For reasons that clearly had more to do with boosting attendance at the clubs than with the dancing abilities displayed by the group, Vito and Carl seem to have become minor media darlings over the course of the 1960s and into the 1970s. The two can be seen separately and together in a string of cheap exploitation films, including Mondo Bizarro from 1966, Something's Happening, a.k.a. The Hippie Revolt from 1967, The Notorious Mondo Hollywood, also released in 1967, and You Are What You Eat with David Crosby, Frank Zappa, and Tiny Tim, which hit theaters in 1968. In 1972, Vito made his acting debut in a non-documentary film, The White Horse Gang. Polikas reportedly also popped up on Groucho Marx's You Bet Your Life, and Franzoni made an appearance on a 1968 Dick Clark TV special. The golden child, Godo Polikas, was featured in a photo in Life magazine circa 1966, and the whole troupe showed up for an appearance on The Tonight Show. According to Barry Miles, Vito also appeared regularly on The Joe Pine Show and in between the bare-breasted girls in the late 50s and early 60s men's magazines. Joe Pine, for those of you too young to remember, is the guy we have to thank for paving the way for the likes of Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Michael Savage, Don Imus, Morton Downey Jr., Jerry Springer, and Wally George. From Mr. Pine, you see, was the guy who pioneered the confrontational interview style favored by so many today. The decorated Marine Corps veteran debuted as a talk radio host in 1950 and quickly became known for insulting and demeaning anyone who dared to disagree with him, guests and listeners alike. In 1957, he moved his show to L.A., and by 1965, he was nationally syndicated both on the radio and on television. His favorite targets, as you may have guessed, included hippies, feminists, gays, and anti-war activists, and his interviews frequently ended with the guest either walking off or being thrown off the stage. Nearing the peak of his popularity, Pine died on March 23, 1970, at the age of 45, reportedly of lung cancer. His ideological offspring, however, live on. Chapter 7. The Death of Godo Polikas, Anger's Infant Lucifer. Vito would come in every night with an entourage, mostly four or five really great-looking girls. It's a weird parallel, but it was like a non-violent Manson situation, a little cult. Lou Adler, manager-producer of the Mamas and the Papas, co-organizer of the Monterey Pop Festival, investor in J.C. Brings Hair Salon, 
and business partner of mobster club owner Elmer Valentine. I've said for years that there are some similarities between Vito and Manson. Vito was sort of like a pimp. He was welcomed as a VIP with the emerging rock crowd because he always showed up with these free-thinking 14 and 15-year-old girls that would be happy to satisfy their needs. A member of the Polikas family in email correspondence with the author. Recruits for Vito and Carl's dance troupe weren't likely hard to come by, given that according to Miles, Vito operated the first crash pad in LA, an open house to countless runaways where everyone was welcome for a night particularly young women. By the mid-1960s, the group had expanded into a second communal location in addition to the basement studio at 303 Laurel Avenue, the ubiquitous log cabin. According to Jack Bulware, writing in Mojo, architect Robert Byrd and his son built a new guest house, a.k.a. the treehouse on the property in the early 1960s. <laughs> And the following year, a communal family of weirdos moved into the cabin and treehouse centered around two underground hipsters named Vito Polikas and Carl Franzoni, organizers of freeform dance troops at clubs along the Sunset Strip. By 1967, the dancers were splitting their rent with staff from the hippie publication The Oracle, Retired journalist John Bilby recalls at least 36 people living and partying at the log cabin and treehouse, including the band Fraternity of Man. Tim Larry was definitely there. George Harrison and Ravi Shankar were there, Bilby says. For the record, Fraternity of Man was a one-hit wonder band, best known for the ever-popular novelty song Don't Bogart Me. Tim Leary was, in this writer's humble opinion, best known for being a painfully obvious CIA asset. And the Oracle was a San Francisco-based publication with intelligence ties that specialized in pitching psychedelic occultism to impressionable youth. Leary, it probably should be noted, also had a home of his own in Laurel Canyon. According to Barry Miles, Franzoni's commune ended in May 1968, as that was when the Oracle moved out and our old friend Frank Zappa moved in. The lead mother had visited Carl at the log cabin on a previous trip and realized it was perfect for his needs. And it was an easy move for Frank, since he was already living in Laurel Canyon at the home of Pamela Zerubica, a.k.a. Susie Cream Cheese, at 8404 Kirkwood Drive, where Zappa had met his new wife, Gail, and where Gail's old kindergarten pal, Jim Morrison, was known to occasionally pass the time. Ms. Zerubica, cream cheese, was yet another member of Vito's dance troupe. As multiple sources remember it, Miles is mistaken in his contention that Franzoni's commune came to an end Frank Zappa took over as ringmaster, to be sure, but Franzoni and all his cohorts stayed on. Carl had a room in the basement where he was known to bowl in the middle of the night, usually naked and intoxicated. The doomed Christine Furka had a room down there as well, as did other future GTOs. 
various other members of the dance troupe occupied other nooks and crannies in both the main house and the guest house tree house. Indeed, as Miles noted correctly, the freak dancers became so closely associated with the mothers of invention that they got dubbed as the mother's auxiliary, and Carl Franzoni in particular was included in a lot of group photographs. Vito and Carl also received vocal credits on the band's debut album, as did none other than Bobby Beausoleil. And that, in a nutshell, is the story of Vito and his freak dancers, or at least a sanitized version. Because there is, as it turns out, a very dark underbelly to the story, and much of it is centered around that angelic hippie child that the readers of Life magazine met in 1966, and who we now must sadly add to the Laurel Canyon death list. For young Godo Polikas, you see, never made it past the age of three. The specifics of the tragedy are difficult to determine, unfortunately, as there is little agreement in the various accounts of the event. According to Barry Miles, Vito and Sue's three-year-old son Godo had fallen through a trap door in the roof of the building and died. Michael Walker tells of a two- or three-year-old Godo falling to his death from a scaffold at the studio. An article in the San Francisco Weekly had it as a five-year-old boy who died when he fell through a skylight. Supergroupie and former freak dancer Pamela DeBar agreed with the skylight scenario, but not the age. Vito's exquisite little puppet child Godo fell through a skylight during a wacky photo session on the roof and died at the age of three and a half. Alvin Fisterer of the band Love recalled a much darker scenario. Vito got married, had a baby, gave it acid, and it fell off the roof and died. When Robert Carl Cohen digitally remastered his notorious Mondo Hollywood for DVD release, he added postscripts for all the famous and infamous people who were featured in his film. For Godo Polikas, he inserted the following caption, Died H2, victim of medical malpractice. Thus, we appear to have a further muddying of the waters. So muddy, in fact, that in addition to there being various competing fell from some scaffolding, fell through a trap door, crashed through a skylight accounts, there are also at least two medical malpractice stories. Before reviewing those, though, it would perhaps be instructive to examine the context in which this tragedy played out. We know, for example, that a musician and writer named Raphael told writer Michael Walker that he had been present one evening at Vito's place when Godo was brought out. They passed that little boy around, naked, in a circle, with their mouths. That was their thing about introducing him to sensuality. We also know that Vito and Sue had a rather odd reaction to the death of their firstborn son and only child, as recounted by DeBar. I was beside myself with sorrow. But Vito and Sue insisted on continuing our plans for the evening. We went out dancing. And when people asked where little Godo was, Vito said, He died today. It was weird. Really weird. 
Barry Miles, who was also close to the scene, had a similar recollection, though he attempted to put a more positive spin on the reaction of the parents. Vito and Sue's three-year-old son, Godo, had fallen through a trap door on the roof of their building and died. That evening, Vito, Sue, and the gang went out as usual, dancing with an even fiercer intensity to assuage their grief. Godo died at 7.30 p.m. on December 23, 1966, some 36 hours before Christmas morning. On the side of reality that I live on, the death of a child at any time would deter most parents from going out and partying the night away. That it occurred virtually on the eve of Christmas makes Vito and Sue's actions that much more incomprehensible. Adding to the weirdness factor is the full text of the quote from the San Francisco Weekly that I previously presented an edited version of. Kenneth Anger's first candidate to play Lucifer, a five-year-old boy whose hippie parents had been fixtures on the Los Angeles counterculture scene, fell through a skylight to his death. By 1967, Anger had relocated to San Francisco and was searching for a new Lucifer. As some readers might be aware, he soon found his new Lucifer in the form of Mansonite and former grassroots guitarist Bobby Beausoleil. And so it was that the soon-to-be-convicted murderer replaced the cherubic hippie child as the face of Lucifer. But what was it, one wonders, that drew Anger's twisted eye to the young boy? Beausoleil has said that some of Anger's film projects were for private collectors. Every once in a while, he'd do a little thing that wouldn't be for distribution. Biographer Bill Landis has written that projects such as those led at one time to Anger being investigated by the police on suspicion that he had been producing snuff films. Pamela DeBar has shed further light on the dark edges of the freak troupe with this description of a scene that Vito had staged one evening in his studio. Two tenderly young girls were tonguing each other. Everyone was silently observing the scene as if it were part of their necessary training by the headmaster, Vito. One of the girls on the four-poster was only 12 years old, and a few months later, Vito was deported to Tahiti for this very situation, and many more just like it. It was actually Haiti that Vito appears to have fled to, and then to Jamaica, which at the time had no extradition treaty with the United States, accompanied by his wife Sue and their new baby daughter, Groovy Nipples Polikas, born on June 23, 1967. The couple would have several more offspring, each given an increasingly ridiculous name, Beep BP Polikas, born on December 29, 1969, Sky Polikas, born, bizarrely enough, on what would have been Godot's eighth birthday, December 1, 1971, and Freakus Magikus Polikas, born on January 28, 1974, just a little more than a year before the couple divorced in March of 1975 in Northern California. According to Miles, Vito's flight from justice occurred in December of 1968, though other accounts vary. 
Carl Franzoni, meanwhile, became embroiled in some unspecified legal troubles of his own and went into hiding, later resurfacing in Canada by some reports. At around that same time, Frank Zappa moved on to yet another location in Laurel Canyon, a high-security home on Woodrow Wilson Drive. Also at around that same time, according to author Ed Sanders, the Manson family came calling at the log cabin. One former Manson family associate claims that a group of four to six family members lived on Laurel Canyon Boulevard in the log cabin house, once owned by cowboy actor Tom Mix. They lived there for a few weeks in late 1968 in a cave-like hollow in back of the residence. According to Franzoni, Manson also came calling at the Vito Clay studio on Laurel Avenue. Applebaum took over Vito's place when Vito vacated at Beverly and Laurel, so he inherited all the people that came after that. He was the beginning of the Manson clan. Manson came there because he had heard about Vito, but Vito was gone. It makes perfect sense in retrospect that Charles Manson and his family came calling just as Vito fled the scene and that a Mansonite replaced the freak child as the embodiment of Lucifer. For the truth, you see, is that in many significant ways, Charles Manson was little more than a younger version of Vito Policus. Consider, if you will, all of the following Manson-esque qualities that Policus, and to some extent Franzoni, seemed to share. Vito considered himself to be a gifted artist and poet, as did our old friend Charlie Manson. Vito, according to Miles, was something of a guru, as was, quite obviously, Chuck Manson. Vito surrounded himself with a flock of very young and often underage women, as did Manson. Vito was considerably older than his followers, and so too was Charlie. When Vito addressed his flock, they listened with rapt attention as though they were being delivered the word of God, as was true with Manson as well. Carl Franzoni was known to wear a black cape and refer to himself as Captain Fuck, while Manson was also partial to black capes and would at times declare himself to be the God of Fuck. Vito is said to have had a virtually insatiable libido, as did by numerous reports Chuck Manson. Vito's flock adopted nicknames to aid in the depersonalization process, as did Charlie's. Vito's troupe included a Beverly Hills hairstylist named Sheldon Jaman, while Charlie's included a Beverly Hills hairpiece stylist named Charles Watson. Vito believed in introducing children to sexuality at a very young age, while in the Manson family, as Sanders has noted, infant sexuality was encouraged. Vito apparently liked to stage live sex shows for his followers involving underage participants, which was also a specialty of Charles Mills Manson. Finally, Vito encouraged his followers to drug themselves while he himself largely abstained, thus enabling him to at all times maintain control, while Manson limited his own drug intake for the very same reason. Franzoni and Manson were not, by the way, the only folks on the Laurel Canyon sunset strip scene 
who developed a fondness for black capes in the latter half of the 1960s. As Michael Walker noted in Laurel Canyon, during that same period of time, David Crosby had taken to wearing an Oscar Wilde, Frank Lloyd Wrightish cape wherever he went. In unrelated news, Ed Sanders notes in his controversial The Family that around March 10, 1968, a convoy of seven process automobiles containing 30 people and 14 Alsatian dogs journeyed toward Los Angeles. Vincent Bugliosi added in his best-selling Helter Skelter that in 1968 and 1969, the process launched a major recruiting drive in the United States. They were in Los Angeles in May and June of 1968 and for at least several months in the fall of 1969. As Gary Lockman wrote in Fortean Times in May 2000, the process church of the final judgment, often referred to as just the process, was one of the most controversial cults of the 60s. Formed in 1963 in London as an offshoot of Scientology, the group was the brainchild of Robert Moore, a former cavalry officer who would soon adopt the name Robert de Grimston, and Mary Ann McLean, the proprietor of an elite prostitution ring with ties to the UK's so-called Profumo Affair. According to various reports, McLean was at one time married to famed pugilist and Freemason Sugar Ray Robinson, who, as we will see in a later chapter, lived right around the corner from future love frontman Arthur Lee during that time. The group arrived in the States in 1968, establishing footholds in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New Orleans, New York, and Boston. The organization soon began producing a magazine that, as Lockman says, had an editorial policy that favored Hitler, Satan, and Gore. Singer-songwriter Mary Ann Faithful, who appeared in an issue of the magazine, later distanced herself from the group, saying that there was something almost like fascism about the process. The cult's fascist mindset was amply illustrated by their choice of a symbol, which Lockman accurately describes as bearing an uncanny resemblance to the Nazi swastika. In The Family, Sanders describes the process as a death-worshipping church composed of hooded snuffoids who were directly connected to the Manson murders. Maury Terry likewise fleshed out connections between the process and New York's Son of Sam murders in his equally controversial The Ultimate Evil. Spokespersons for the cult, not surprisingly, vehemently denied any involvement in any such murderous activities. One thing is certain, though. Processians were instantly recognizable on the streets of L.A. due to their curious habit of donning black capes wherever they went. In other news, it appears as though Frank Zappa also displayed some of the same, less-than-admirable qualities shared by Manson and Polikas. As DeBar observed, Vito was just like Frank. He never got high either. They were both ringmasters who always wanted to be in control. And as Barry Miles noted in his Zappa biography, Frank's daughter, Moon, recalls men with straggling beards, body odor, and bad posture 
who crouched naked near her playthings. Also, the Zappa children watched porn with their parents and were encouraged in their own sexuality as soon as they reached puberty. When they became teenagers, Gail insisted they shower with their overnight guests in order to conserve water. Apparently, the Zappas were having a hard time paying their DWP bill. By the early 1970s, Vito Polikas had resurfaced up north in Cotati, California, with Carl Franzoni once again at his side. The two were, by all accounts, treated like rock stars in the funky little town, and they are to this day proudly and prominently featured on the city's official website. By some accounts, Vito even served as mayor of the town, with Franzoni assisting as his director of parks and recreation. Polikas also taught dance classes at Sonoma State College. Sue went to work for an attorney, leaving the hippie life behind. Franzoni, meanwhile, turned up now and then on that early version of America's Got Talent known as The Gong Show, apparently as one of the worm dancers. The Gong Show, of course, was the brainchild of Chuck Barris, who famously claimed that during the days when he appeared to be working as a mild-mannered game show producer, he was actually on the payroll of the CIA, and that while he was ostensibly serving as a chaperone to the couples who had won trips on the dating game, what he was really doing was carrying out assassinations. Possibly like that Harry Houdini guy, who we'll discuss in a later chapter. Anyway, during the 1970s, the cabin and treehouse scene, according to Jack Bulware, grew creepy. Actually, it had always been pretty creepy. It likely just became a little more openly creepy. Eric Burden of the Animals moved in after Zappa vacated, and the property continued to be communally occupied. In fact, it appears to have remained something of a commune throughout the 1970s, quite possibly right up until the time that it burned to the ground on October 31, 1981. Who paid the rent is anybody's guess, as is why such a prestigious property seems to have been made readily available to pretty much any communal family of weirdos who wanted to move in. Vito Polikas and Carl Franzoni appear to have remained in Northern California throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s. Vito married once again, for the fourth time, while he was in his 60s. Franzoni was still milling about the Santa Rosa area as of early 2013. In February 2008, the aging freak, then reportedly 74, rode along on a tour of 1960s hotspots offered by a local tour company and delighted the crowd by reenacting his distinctive dance style in front of Vito's former studio. The tour operator billed Franzoni as the King of the Freaks, a title formerly held by his mentor, Vito Polikas. The original king, alas, had died in October of 1992. His memorial service was held appropriately enough on October 31, 1992, All Hallows' Eve. Returning now to the death of young Godo Polikas, filmmaker Robert Carl Cohen, in an emailed defense of his medical malpractice claim, provided a detailed account of the incident, one that he said was told to him by Carl Franzoni on the evening of the tragedy and retold later by Vito himself. 
Godo, two and a half years of age at the time, was with his parents on the roof of 333 Laurel Avenue during an L.A. Free Press photo shoot. Two older children were holding his hands as they ran about. They led him onto a white-painted glass skylight, which collapsed. Godo fell through, sustaining a cut to his head and bruises. His parents took him to Hollywood Emergency Hospital, where the doctors stitched the cut on his head and recommended he be taken to L.A. County General Hospital for observation overnight in case he'd sustained a concussion. A few hours later, Vito received a phone call from L.A. County General that Godo had died. L.A. County D.A. Avell Younger convinced that Godo had been given drugs, ordered two separate autopsies by L.A. County Coroner Noguchi. The two autopsies both revealed that Godo had no drugs in his system and that the cause of death had been strangulation due to the child's breathing his own vomit. Vito sued L.A. County for wrongful death due to medical malpractice. The charge was that, in contradiction to standard medical practice, Godo had been restrained by being strapped down on his back, something which is not normally done following a head injury due to the possibility of the victim strangling on their own vomit. The reason this was done in Godo's case was probably because the child was offending the hospital staff by repeating some of the first words he'd learned, i.e., fuck you. The L.A. authorities offered Vito a $20,000 pretrial settlement, which he refused. I suggested to Vito that since the case would be tried by a jury of mostly conservative people, usually retired civil servants, he get his long hair cut short, shave his beard and goatee, and wear a business suit and tie. Vito declined changing his appearance. The jury ruled in favor of the hospital. A member of the Polikas family heard a much different account, this one also coming directly from Vito. He, Vito, and Sue told me that Godo fell from the roof through the skylight, as often told, but died when, in the hospital, the district attorney's office insisted on testing Godo for drugs to prove Vito was drugging his own child. The best way to test was with a spinal tap that killed him because he was so young. That was his story to me, and he elaborated about his screaming child being tied down in his presence for the spinal tap, and then suddenly becoming lifeless. It is perfectly obvious that both versions of events cannot possibly be true. In one version, Vito was present when Godo died, while in the other, he received notification over the phone. One version of reality holds that the boy was tested for drugs after his death, while the other version claims that the drug test was what killed him. Goda was restrained in both versions of events, but in one, it's so that he could be administered the spinal tap that killed him, while in the other, it is the restraints that killed him. Restraints utilized because for some reason he was yelling, fuck you, at the hospital staff, and no one knew of a non-violent way to deal with an injured three-year-old. If the medical malpractice story is true, then why did Vito tell more than one version of it? This is clearly not a situation where memories could have faded over time. 
no parent could confuse such particulars as if they actually watched their child die before, of course, donning their dancing shoes and heading out to the whiskey. There are, to be sure, a number of questions raised by the malpractice scenario, particularly with Cohen's account. For one thing, as if the reaction of the parents was not already difficult to understand. We are now being asked to believe that they went out dancing immediately after Godot was essentially murdered. Also, why is it that no one else who was making the scene in those days seems to remember a malpractice trial? And why were kids being allowed to play unsupervised on a roof? And would a toddler who crashed through a skylight and then fell a considerable distance among shards of broken glass really sustain only a minor cut and a few bruises? And would a hospital really be so callous as to inform parents of the death of a child by telephone? And if Vito was so quick to file suit against the city, why didn't he also sue his landlord for allowing such a dangerous condition to exist? As it turns out, Godot's L.A. County Certificate of Death provides some insight into his short life and curious death. Clearly indicated is that the coroner found the cause of death to be shock due to hemorrhage into deep cervical and superior mediastinal areas. The death was deemed to be an accident that occurred when Godot fell through skylight while playing. He did, though, die at Los Angeles General Hospital at 7.30 p.m., precisely five hours after the accident occurred at 2.30 p.m., though the times seem oddly approximate. The timeline offered up by the document certainly seems a bit odd. Despite the fact that Godot died on December 23, his autopsy was not completed until April 13, a delay of nearly four months. Was that delay caused by the fabled second autopsy? Even if that were the case, four months seems like an inordinately long time to hold up the release of the body for burial. To further add to the mystery, even after the body was released, it was almost another full month before it was buried, on May 9, 1967. Why did it take some four and a half months to lay the child to rest? The tragedy was reported not by the parents, but by a Mr. Marvin Kahn attorney. After a child has suffered a serious accident, do parents with nothing to hide generally delay the arrival of help by calling an attorney and having him contact the proper authorities? It appears that there are, and probably always will be, unanswered questions surrounding the short life and curious death of the angelic hippie child who missed his big screen debut as Lucifer. I'll let a member of the Polikas family provide the final words on the King of Freaks. Asked by the author if he believed that Vito was a possible pedophile, he answered, probably. But I believe you have to go deeper into the libido and drives of so many rock stars and famous people who had an unhealthy relationship with sex and drugs. 
any biography of the rockers of that time and probably any time just skirts around the reality that their greatest secret and shame includes the sex they had and have with very young girls and boys. Roman Polanski just got caught. I love hearing from people who tell me Vito saved their soul or protected them from danger when they were young and at risk. I am sure some became survivors and others fell deeper into the abyss. So it goes.